This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Just a note before starting, Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. Hello and welcome to today's episode. My name is Anna Thomas. And today's episode has been about three years in the making, and I have really looked forward to the day when I could bring it to you. In the early days of my podcast, I brought you a story about three teenage girls living here in my home country of Australia. They were sexually abused by their high school principal, who, I must add, was a woman. What followed is more than 15 years of sisters trying to bring this woman to justice. I have followed the case over the last three years and released three episodes outlining the progress of the case. And today I can finally bring you the last chapter in this long drawn out saga. After fleeing to Israel, the principal was finally extradited to Australia and her trial has now been completed. But before discussing the verdict, You will hear a replay of the episodes released so far and then the ultimate conclusion to this case. So listen now to this final episode in the series called Kiss of Judas. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 34. Here is a preview of the Bad Apple story today. It's called Kiss of Judas. The students experienced the ultimate betrayal. For this story, we go to the city of Melbourne in Australia and meet three sisters named Ellie, Nicole and Dassey Ehrlich. They are now in their 30s, but we will go back and tell the story of what happened to them when they were teenagers. The girls were members of the Adas Israel Jewish community in Melbourne, who were a very private, ultra-Orthodox and tight-knit community. The roughly 200 family community lived within a single square kilometre in the suburb of St Kilda and had their own synagogue, kindergartens, schools, shops, restaurants and medical services. As Orthodox Judaism began evolving and accepting modernity, the Adas rejected the reforms and wanted to strictly adhere to Jewish law and custom, which led to their persecution. They considered themselves as the most religiously authentic group of Jews. Some of its members fled to Melbourne in Australia, and thus the Adas Jewish community had begun. They segregated themselves from modern society and didn't mix with the wider Jewish communities. The three sisters grew up in this community with five other siblings. Children in the Adas community were raised without TV internet and radio, and only had access to Jewish newspapers and magazines. They were shielded from world events, and their exposure to people outside of the community was limited. Family life for the sisters was very strict, and their memories of their childhood were not happy ones. Each day followed a strict religious routine, and Nicole recalls here what it was like. Every single action we ever did was governed by a fear of what would happen if we didn't do the right thing at all times, day or night. Their mother was very controlling and angry, and they would always be walking on eggshells. Punishments were common, and they have particularly haunting memories of a cupboard under the stairs, which was the punishment room. They remember their home to be a very cold place, lacking in emotional warmth. At the very young age of three, boys and girls were segregated from one another and girls were forbidden to talk to any male that they were not related to. Girls were groomed at a very young age that their future would consist of becoming a committed Jewish wife and mother, raising large families, often with more than 10 children. Modesty for women was strictly enforced. Women wore long skirts to the ankles and long-sleeved tops with high necklines. Married women were required to use wigs and scarves to cover their heads. The sisters remember that they weren't even allowed to walk around at home in their pyjamas. 
If they wanted to get out of bed to go to the bathroom or get a drink, they had to cover up. The sisters remember that they had never even seen each other's bodies naked. Marriages were arranged and Dassey recalls as a teenager that marriage was more important to her than school. I just need to fill up my time until the matchmaker calls my parents with someone she feels may be a good husband for me. I don't really need a VCE, which is a Victorian Certificate of Education, to get married and be a good religious wife and mother. Dassey remembers there was no sex education at home or school, but brides and grooms did attend classes where sex and marriage was discussed. Dassey spent much of her teenage years writing in her diary, saying, We didn't have TV, we didn't have internet, and we had a lot of thoughts and expressions that we wanted to share, but we didn't feel that we could with anyone. Reading through her diaries years later, showed how lonely she was, the strictness of home life, her emotionally absent parents, and the constant fear of being punished for minor things. As family image was so important in the Adas community, the sisters did not dare tell anyone about what was happening at home, as it would bring shame and stigma and therefore ruin a girl's marriage prospects. Now in her 30s, Dassey says, I didn't realise it was an unusual community until I left it. It was my way of life and I didn't know anything else. We were told that ours was the best way of life and the superior way of life. It was just accepted that you didn't interact with people who are not part of your community unless absolutely necessary. So we have seen what it was like for the sisters growing up in the Adas community. However, Little did the girls know that the worst was yet to come. The Adas community had their own schools with separate sites for the boys and girls. The sisters attended the Adas Israel Girls School. In the year 2000, a new female principal came to the school, having been recruited from Israel. Within a short time, she became very well liked and respected by the school community. By the time the new principal had arrived, Michelle, who was the girl's older sister, had already left the school, but she recalls hearing about her from her sisters. She says, I had heard that she was very energetic and very capable from the reactions of my neighbours and people that lived on our street at that point. There was a great deal of reverence and respect. It was almost as if she was larger than life. She seemed to be running the school and everything from admissions to curriculum to school camps. Everything ran through her. She cast a wide sphere of influence over the community. The principal was married and as Adas tradition dictates, she had a very large family of eight children. Dassey remembers how people felt about her. People looked up to her and listened to her as if hers were God's words. She was someone who everyone looked up to and idolised. She was like an angel who had flown in from overseas. People often commented on her warmth and caring attitude towards everyone in her school. And for the three sisters, she became that mother figure that they never had. They received the kind of emotional attention that they had never experienced and therefore were very fond of their days spent at school rather than being at home. Nicole was the oldest, and at about the age of 16, her time spent with the principal started to change. She started showing her physical attention, the sort of touching that Nicole had never experienced. Being so naive, she was unaware that the principal was making sexual advances towards her. Nicole never told anyone what was happening, and she went on to become a teacher at the school. Then, at the age of 15, Dassey started having the same experiences as her sister, but they didn't know what was happening to each other. For Dassey, it started with the principal offering her private lessons in her office, and she was flattered that she cared so much about her education. I would go to her office and study, and she would put her arms around me. I found it quite comforting. I felt quite loved and really special that she was showing me her attention. Then more touching happened, and Dassey says, I thought it was weird, 
but it was also like, well, she's the boss, she is the adult here, so it must be right. With each meeting, the touching progressed further and further and went on for three years. Just like her sister Nicole, she was naive and being kissed on the mouth was not something she had even knew existed. Here is Dassey speaking about sex education. There was no education about sex in the school. Um, yeah, my understanding of sex as a 16, 17, 18 year old was that of a four or five year old. Both girls couldn't explain what was happening to them, but they did get a sense that it wasn't right. The longer it progressed, the more they began to disassociate from what was happening and imagine that they were somewhere else while it was occurring. Then the sisters attended a winter camp with Nicole as the teacher and Dassey was still a student. Nicole saw her sister come out of the principal's camp room and they both looked at each other, realising for the first time that they had been experiencing the same thing. However, they never spoke about it to each other. Nicole says, what was there to say? There was no reason to speak about it. It was just a matter of self-preservation and surviving at that point. I just find this so sad that they couldn't even talk to each other as sisters. Their younger sister Ellie noticed the attention her older sisters were getting and was very envious. She too wanted to feel special and be one of the principal's favourites. And yes, you can see where this is going. Ellie too became one of her favourites, but not in the way that she had ever anticipated. Ellie remembers the principal saying, This is good for you. This is going to be good for you when you get married. What I'm doing is helping you and I'm giving you love. For Dassie, the abuse finally ended when she was 18 and entered into an arranged marriage. Her husband was 23 and had been chosen by her parents. The first time Dassie met her future husband, she says, I was very nervous. Suddenly I was supposed to speak to this guy I didn't know and have a conversation about marriage, as my mother was in the next room listening in. We talked about the guiding principles of life and what sort of home you wanted to be in and what kinds of kids you want to bring up. How many kids is never a question because birth control is not an option. You have to get the rabbi's permission for that. Within a week of meeting him, she became engaged. And after getting married, they went to live in Israel, where her husband could pursue his religious studies. Of course, it was expected that they would start their family straight away. But Dassey had difficulties conceiving, and when she finally did, she sadly had a miscarriage. She became very depressed and began seeing a therapist. She was able to reveal to the therapist the abuse she suffered, which she had not even told her husband. It was like a very shameful secret because I believed it was all my fault. It was like self-loathing, she says. And can you believe this? The therapist didn't believe her at first, but then he contacted someone he knew in the Adas community in Melbourne and repeated what Dassey had told him. As far as Dassey knew, it was just herself and two sisters who had experienced the abuse, but it soon came out that there were many more victims. It was now 2008, and the allegations of abuse against multiple victims prompted a special meeting to be held at the school. The meeting was attended by the school board president, a school board member, a barrister, a psychologist and a teacher from the school. At the meeting, the principal was put on speakerphone and she was informed of the allegations made against her, all of which she denied. Surprise, surprise. She was told she would be stood down, but what happened next can only be described as deplorable. Instead of calling the police, they decided to fly her out of Australia to Israel. Only hours after the meeting, a travel agent friend that they knew opened up their agency at 10pm at night and arranged the tickets for the principal and four of her children, which was paid for by the school. The flight departed at 1am the next morning. Wow, what a story, but it's far from over. A year after the principal left for Israel, 
Dassey was still living in Israel, but she and her husband decided to return to Australia and back into the Adas community. She was finally able to become pregnant, but instead of feeling joy, she failed to bond with her daughter. She says, I couldn't feel anything for the child I was carrying. It scared me so much. It got worse after she was born. I was getting lots of flashbacks and I literally could not deny it anymore. I was suicidal, I was self-harming, and I felt like the worst mother in the world. Dassey was admitted to a mental health clinic and her marriage broke down. Here she is describing her time in the hospital. Until I went into hospital, I had no connection with people outside my community. In there, I met other mums and it opened up a whole new world for me. They had the internet and I started reading books on religion, history, philosophy, everything I could get my hands on. Dassey's life began to change, her health improved and she was seeing the world in a different way. She was finally able to bond with her daughter who helped her to understand the full extent of the principal's actions. She began contemplating taking legal action. I started thinking about blank flying to Israel and maybe committing the same crimes there. I now had a daughter and I couldn't imagine that happening to her. But I knew that if I did take legal action, there would be no going back to the community. I knew nothing else but that community. I didn't have a penny to my name. I had left my husband and I was in a psychiatric hospital with literally only the suitcase that I had taken there. In 2015, Dassey did manage to summon all her strength to bring the matter to court and she was awarded record damages of $1.2 million against the school and the perpetrator. When handing down his judgment, Judge Jack Rush said, quote, that the sexual abuse occurred under the guise of Jewish education by the headmistress of the school makes the breach of trust associated with the abuse monstrous. The evidence discloses the sole motivation of the suspect in her dealings with the plaintiff was her own sexual gratification. It was only during the court proceedings that Dassey found out the details of the principal's aided departure from Australia by the school. She says, I wasn't shocked by that when I finally heard about it. The cover-up was like something that all religious communities around the world would do, so I was disappointed but not shocked. This is what the Adas do with a lot of their problems. They shove it under the carpet, pretend it didn't happen, and move on. The judge was also scathing of the school's failure to act and inform the police of the abuse. He said, In such circumstances, the alleged perpetrator should not be assisted to urgently flee the jurisdiction. The failure of the board to report the allegations to the police prior to arranging the departure is deplorable. The school board president made this statement, quote, We have acted as any normal person would act. We have responsibilities for our children and for our community. We could not allow, at that time, a teacher like that to stay anywhere near the children. Don't you agree with me that the best thing is that they don't have anything more to do with the children? He maintained that it was the principal herself that made the choice to leave that night. Dassey's sisters Nicole and Ellie also went to court and were granted out-of-court settlements from the school. All three sisters then knew their lives would take a different path and all ties with the Adas community were severed. Many viewed the sisters as traitors. They were estranged from their parents who were approached to respond to the claims of childhood abuse but declined. So now, with the trauma of the past being out in the open and compensation being granted, you may be thinking, well, what about the principal? What happened to her? Did she flee to Israel never to be seen again? This is now where the rest of this story continues. The principal had fled to Israel in 2008. Back in Australia, the police began their investigations and issued a warrant against her for 74 child sex offences involving at least eight students. An extradition request was made in Israel. 
This means Australia made a request for her to return to Australia to face trial. She was finally arrested in 2014, which was six years after she had fled from Australia. She was placed under house arrest and was required to wear an electronic tag. The extradition hearing, which was scheduled, had to be postponed as the accused claimed she was suffering from severe anxiety and panic attacks. The hearing was subsequently postponed a number of times due to her claims of mental illness. It's a requirement of the extradition process that the accused be present at court hearings, so time and time again, mental illness was used to postpone the hearings. After she was finally arrested, the sisters made a number of visits to Israel to attend the hearings, only to be disappointed each time. Here is Nicole speaking at the conclusion of one of the hearings. The length of time has a massive emotional toll on each of us. I have, we have all stopped working to do this campaign. Our families still come first, but this campaign is largely taken over our lives. But we're doing it on behalf of everyone, not just ourselves. It's very hard. It's always very hard to hear psychiatrists say over and over again that she's unfit for trial, that she's not well enough to come and stand trial in Australia. We are just waiting and hoping time and time again, and we will come back again to Israel as we need to, to hear the judge make that decision and hope that she says that she is fit to stand trial. That is what we are waiting for and hoping for every single time we come, no matter how hard it is to sit in court and not have a voice and not be able to say anything and just listen to psychiatrists have their personal opinions mixed with professional opinions, and we're kind of at a loss. We're not allowed to speak. But the sisters remained resolute, and back home in Australia, they continued their campaign to bring her to justice. The former Premier of Victoria, Ted Bailey, supported the sisters and accompanied them to Israel. The Australian Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, also went to Israel, meeting with the Israeli PM, Benjamin Netanyahu. Daniel Andrews, the current Premier of Victoria, also raised the matter with Benjamin Netanyahu. A petition of 17,000 signatures from members of the community where the school is located was also delivered to officials in Israel. Then another two years passed after her arrest and the sisters received the news that an Israeli court suspended the extradition hearings and the accused was released from home detention free to return back into the community. As a condition of the release, she was required to undergo psychiatric assessments every six months, which would determine if she was fit to attend court. This was just another stab in the heart for the sisters. Then another two years passed and she was arrested again. This time, evidence was attained from private investigators that showed she had been faking mental illness. Photos and videos had been taken of her seemingly leading a normal life out and about in the community. It had been stated that her mental illness had left her totally incapacitated, yet here she was caught on video with evidence that contradicted this. Following this evidence, it was ruled by the court that she had faked mental illness to avoid extradition. The court ruled that she was fit to attend the hearings. This all happened in July last year, 2019, and everyone involved were overjoyed that it seemed the case was finally heading in the right direction. Now, to further complicate this story, it came to light last year that the Israeli Deputy Health Minister came under suspicion for using his position to stop the extradition. It was alleged that doctors were pressured to falsify psychiatric assessments to deem the accused unfit for trial. It was discovered that the principal had once held a position at a school run by the same ultra-Orthodox group that the minister belonged to. So, after being arrested again due to the evidence showing that she was faking illness, A date was then set for December last year, in 2019, for psychiatrists to deliver their report on her ability to face an extradition trial. The three sisters were watching the proceedings at home in Australia. 
only to hear the following unbelievable set of circumstances. The psychiatrist who was set to testify had forgotten it was scheduled for that day. I'll just pause here so that you can all gasp in disbelief. And the judge had only found out on that day. This particular hearing would have been number 62. Yes, 62. To date, the whole drama had involved 30 psychiatrists. So it seems to me that there was psychiatrist shopping, just like some people do doctor shopping. They also were actively seeking and finding psychiatrists who were willing to find in favour of the accused that she suffered from mental illness. Dassey said, We feel sick with anxiety. Three months waiting for this day. Who didn't get the memo? Was this intentional? Another nerve-wracking month to wait. Will it actually go ahead? How much longer can we hold on? We don't understand why this is happening, but it doesn't make sense. The former Victorian Premier, Ted Bailey, who was supporting the sisters, said, This shameful farce continues, but the world is watching. And the world should know that blanks victims will not be deterred. They will not be re-victimised. They will not relent. No matter the interference or disgraceful legal games, justice will prevail. That hearing, number 63, did go ahead in January this year, 2020, but continued to be more of the same. The principal's lawyers once again were trying to frustrate and delay the already prolonged saga by requesting they have the opportunity to cross-examine the psychiatrists who had deemed her fit for trial. This request was granted by the judge, which will again be heard at a later date. So this now brings us up to date, but stay tuned, as I know, we will be hearing a lot more about this case. Now, in the years that the case had been progressing, the sisters tried to go on with their lives. Dassey went on to become a qualified nurse and was embracing life as a single mum. She completed a postgraduate diploma in domestic violence and she also advised the State Law Reform Commission on laws impacting victims and the State Police on cultural matters. She was constantly supporting child sex abuse victims in their own battles against their abusers and connecting them to support services. Dassey also started writing a book about her experiences, saying, This is about owning my own story. My daughter will one day grow up and read about my life. I want it to be a story of strength and inspiration rather than victimhood. I wanted to try to take the secrecy and the shame away from my story by telling it in my own voice. Maybe I can even inspire others. I have found a new life and I love it. Now, this case has had a very high profile in Australia. And when I started the podcast, I always had in mind to cover it. I could have waited until its resolution, but as we've seen, it's been progressing now for more than 10 years, and who knows how much longer it will progress. So I decided to tell the story anyway, and will of course continue to monitor for any updates. Even if she is finally extradited to Australia to face trial, you can imagine how long that process is going to take. So I really feel for the sisters that this ordeal will be dragging on for many more years to come. But this just shows how resolute they are and how absolutely determined they are to bring this evil woman to justice. Here are some final words from Dassey. I've had a massive amount of experiences the last year. I mean, experiences that I never thought were possible. It's a very basic prison. I've gone from being, you know, 10 years ago, a shy, reserved passive, submissive person that felt very powerless and weak to someone that's the complete opposite of that now. No, it takes a long time. I mean, the justice system, you know, it takes a long time. I definitely don't see myself as a victim and I don't even see myself as a survivor. That would mean I'm trying to survive something and I believe I'm a lot further along than that. If anything, you know, the word thriver uh, comes to mind. 
Stassi has a Facebook page where she has been documenting the case. And if you'd like to follow her yourself, you can find her at Dassi Ehrlich, which I will spell out D-A-S-S-I-E-R-L-I-C-H. And just recently, I read some great news on her page that her sister Ellie got married only a few weeks ago. So finally, something joyful for these sisters. And just some final words. This story was told not to shame the Jewish religion, as we all have the right to worship and live as we see fit. But rather, it's a story about innocent schoolchildren facing the ultimate betrayal of a principle. Just like Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, this woman also betrayed these girls, hence the title of the story, Kiss of Judas. Welcome everyone to today's episode, which is episode number 71, and it's a special episode today. It's an update on episode 34, The Kiss of Judas. I've mentioned in some of my previous episodes that I continue to monitor some stories for any updates. Some cases are ongoing, there may be court cases pending, etc. So every so often I will look back and see if I can find anything further on a case. With some cases, I invest so much time in them that I sort of feel like I can't sort of leave them alone and just forget about them. I really need to know what's happened. So this is an update on episode 34. So let's now go through what has happened this year. In January this year, at court hearing number 63, the news came that the sisters had been so longing to hear that the principal was fit to stand trial and that she was faking mental illness. However, the defence requested to cross-examine the three psychiatrists who assessed that she was unfit to stand trial. Then in February, hearings 64 and 65 took place. The judge granted the defence wish to cross-examine the psychiatrists. But essentially, this meant going back and repeating a process that had already delayed the whole extradition multiple times. It was an unprecedented move that the defence could bring two of their psychiatrists, who had already testified, to give their opinion on a panel that the judge requested to make a final decision. This panel found that the principal had been faking illness back in September 2019, and then they wanted to do the whole thing again. This just didn't make sense. Then hearing number 66 was heard in April, where the prosecution and the defence delivered their final closing arguments. The judge announced that a final decision would be made in May. Then, hearing number 67 was held in May. At that point, it had been seven years that the case had been progressing through the Israeli courts, and the sisters finally had some wonderful news to celebrate. The judge had ruled the principal is fit to stand trial. Here is the judge's statement. My impression is that the defendant is exacerbating her mental problems and pretending to be mentally ill. Therefore, my conclusion is that the defendant is fit to stand trial and the extradition process on her case should be renewed. It had been alleged that a government minister altered medical documents in the principal's favour to confirm she was mentally unfit to stand trial. The Israeli police then recommended his indictment for fraud and breach of trust charges. Here is a statement from the principal's lawyer. We have serious doubts about the ruling, he said. Our client receives antipsychotic medication every day. We believe she is very mentally ill and isn't able to stand trial. And here is what one of the sisters, Dassey, said herself. This abusive woman has been exploiting the Israeli courts for seven years, intentionally creating obstacles with endless vexatious arguments that have only lengthened our ongoing trauma. Too many emotions to process, 
This is huge. We are overjoyed. So an extradition hearing was then scheduled for July 20. But the girls were cautious not to be too optimistic. They had seen the defence delay and prolong the process so many times and they also had the right to appeal. And of course, they did appeal and they also requested that the extradition hearings be halted immediately. Not only that, but they also lodged a civil action against the prison system for negligence. As we have seen, the court had declared that the principal was mentally fit, but then the defence accused the prison doctors of negligence for giving her antipsychotics. The prison defended themselves, saying they believed she was unwell. So the principal's lawyers took this statement from the prison and used it as new information, declaring that she was not fit. Are you following all of this? Yes, it's just crazy. But good news then came that the Supreme Court denied the request for extradition on July 20 to be postponed. Then hearing number 68 saw the defence make a request for the prosecution to hand over all memos of meetings with Israeli politicians and meetings between Australian and Israeli politicians regarding the case. The sisters saw this as the defence grasping at straws and were thrilled when the request was rejected by the court. I just can't believe the system, how they look for any little thing to delay proceedings. But as we have seen, that is the exact tactic that had been successful for seven years. So then, the pivotal date of July 20 arrived, which was hearing number 69, and this was the beginning of the extradition trial. It had been nine years since the girls signed their police statements in Australia. The girls had intended to be there, but then COVID-19 got in the way and they weren't able to travel from Australia. However, they had a number of supporters in Israel who were giving them regular updates from the proceedings. During this hearing, the defence argued that the abuse was consensual. Can you believe it? Here is Dazzy's response. It's been extremely difficult to hear, even more so that we couldn't be there to represent ourselves in court. The amount of victim blaming was disheartening and traumatising. We didn't expect that in the year 2020, the issue of consent is discussed in relation to sexual abuse. We were minors. She was our principal. A complete imbalance of power. We trusted her. The hearing went into a second day, hearing number 70, and the judge told the defence that the number of appeals was unprecedented, even among the most high-profile murder trials. He said, some of the things that happened with this case have never taken place in the history of the establishment of the State of Israel. The girls were thrilled with the judge's statement as they felt validated. A ruling on the extradition was then set for September 21. So then, in August, I was reading for any updated information on the case through Dassey's Facebook page, where she continues to post how the case is proceeding. Now, this next update refers to a law that has recently been passed in the state of Victoria, here in Australia, where the girls live and where the abuse took place. This new law has left the sisters speechless. It has now been made a crime for rape and sexual assault victims to tell their stories under their real name. So in essence, it's a gag order, and it has been described as a victory for pedophiles and sex offenders. Victims cannot identify themselves in any form of media or even autobiographies. What makes the law even more crazy is that it also applies to historical cases. So people who have been victims in the past also cannot identify themselves. There are many victims who do go on to do victim advocacy work, but these people now 
will be breaking the law if they continue their work under their real names. How can such a law exist? However, survivors do have the option to go to court and obtain an order that gives them the right to self-identify, but it comes at a cost in excess of $10,000. So then they started a campaign which was called hashtag let us speak. The sisters then began talking with their lawyers and local members of parliament to commence an application to lift this gag order. So in essence, they had to make an application to get permission to share their truth, which is bizarre because their story was already in the public domain. And the great news was that they were successful so that they could continue to discuss their story publicly and their success set a precedent for others to do the same. And then, just days later, more great news came their way. The court rejected the appeal by the perpetrator's lawyers against her having to stand trial due to mental illness. So, the extradition decision was still scheduled for the 21st of September. Then, just a few days before this important date, Dassey wrote the following on her Facebook page. 2011, we gave our statements to police. Nine years, 108 months, 3,285 days. September 21st is the extradition decision. 72 court hearings and it has all come down to this. Will blank come back to Australia? Five days to go. Anxious, wired hopeful. Then I was counting down the days until the 21st of September and I looked back on Dassey's Facebook page where she wrote, breaking news, judge decision, blank will be extradited to Australia and she wrote that in capital letters with heaps of exclamation marks. This is victory for justice, a victory not just for us but for all survivors. Exhaling years of holding our breath. We truly value every single one of you for standing with us in our refusal to remain silent. Today, our hearts are smiling. How amazing is that? The girls wanted to be there in Israel, but of course they couldn't because of COVID-19. They are overjoyed, but they fully understand that there will no doubt be appeals. And even if she does return, there will be delays in the Australian justice system due to a backlog of cases as a result of COVID-19. Here is some audio of the girls after hearing the amazing news. We can't stop smiling. There's, there's just so many emotions flooding through us now, like relief, excitement. We can't believe we finally got here. It still feels surreal to hear those words that is fit to stand trial finally to actually have a judge say that she has been deceitful it's just enormous every single time i wake up i'm like actually this is actually happening to actually have our day in court that's what we've been fighting so hard for it might take a while until that's heard but we think that will be back here by the end of this year early next year i want to face her in court and i want to say my truth as i stand here a couple of weeks away from becoming a mother, I hope that this moment will show all those survivors across the world that they too have a voice. So, this now brings us up to date, but of course, we know this case will continue for many more years, even if she does return to Australia. The strength of these girls is absolutely unbelievable. What they went through, and all these years, and at least they are now one step closer. Just listening to their story and what they've been through and how the whole law system works, it is just so long and agonizing. And I just feel for anyone who is going through the system, whether it be because maybe a member of their family has been murdered and the, the perpetrator is going through court and all of that, it just takes so long. The amount of strength that you have to have during all of that. Really, I do not know how they do it because for myself, I can't imagine that I would be able to do it. So I take my hat off to these three ladies. They are absolutely marvellous. 
As this case happened in Australia, this latest victory has been all over the media and over the time that I've been following the story, I've seen footage of the principal being led into court hearings, handcuffed, but this latest footage of her was really shocking. She was always a rather large lady, but now she is so thin that I hardly was able to recognise her. But of course, this is not a bad thing. I really hope that she was only given bread and water, which is what she deserves. I'm not an uncaring person, but I really have no sympathy for her, for what she has put these sisters through. So, of course, this is not the end of the matter, and I am sure in the, in the next year or two, I will be continuing to provide more updates about this story. So, that's the end of this update. So, let's now go through what has happened this year. Finally, last year in 2020, she was deemed to be faking mental illness. So, that was 12 years after leaving Australia. But the three sisters never gave up hope and they were finally rewarded when she returned to Australia earlier this year. So, the first part of the process in Australia was to have a committal hearing to determine if there was enough evidence to go to trial. And it was ultimately determined that yes, she will go to trial next year in March. However, her legal team have stated that they may pursue whether she is fit to stand trial. So it sounds like that we might have that whole circus again that went on in Israel of trying to prove or disprove that she is mentally ill. But hopefully the Australian justice system won't allow that question to drag on for too long. But it does show that even though she is finally in Australia, there is no knowing how long the case will go on for. It really shows you how amazing and resilient those three ladies are. They are truly my heroes. I have so much respect for them. What they have gone through in the last 12 years. And there is one more interesting part to this story that I found out. During the years that the case was progressing through the Israeli courts, we saw that the principal's mental state came into question. Her lawyers argued time and time again that she was mentally ill, while the prosecution argued that she was faking it to avoid extradition. The man who was the health minister at the time has now been accused of tampering with the extradition of the principal by pressuring the psychiatrist to state that the woman was mentally unfit to be extradited. So it's claimed that he took advantage of his political and ministerial power to advance the interest of certain individuals. Now this really doesn't surprise me, as it had long been suspected that this was going on. So that now brings us up to date, and although the trial has been scheduled for March next year, we all know how the courts work, so no doubt her lawyers are working on delaying the trial. So we will just have to see what happens. The trial of the principal has now been completed. So here now is the final chapter in this story. Before looking at the verdict, I first have an update on the health minister who was accused of pressuring ministry employees to alter psychiatric evaluations to make it look as though the principal was unfit to stand trial. He was ultimately found guilty of obstructing justice, which caused the extradition to Australia to be protracted. His lawyers managed to secure a plea deal, and you won't believe the punishment he received. He got eight months probation and a fine of a measly $900. In Israel, there is an organisation called the Movement for Quality Government, and they described the court's decision to accept the plea deal as lenient and shameful and that it erodes public trust and law enforcement's ability to perform its duty. For him to get away with this so easily makes you think that it probably happens more than we care to believe. There is corruption absolutely everywhere, in the police force, in the courts, in the government, no wonder so many people ultimately get found to be innocent 
and that means guilty people are getting off as well. Now to the principal herself. After being extradited to Australia, the principal was charged with 29 sexual assault and rape charges between the years of 2003 and 2007, which was the time that the girls were in high school. She pleaded not guilty to all charges and therefore went to trial. The three sisters, Nicole, Dassey and Ellie, were present in the court to give their testimony. What a moment that must have been, which they had waited 20 years for. So let's look at the arguments put forward by both sides. First, the prosecution. The girls all stated that they highly respected their principal. Their regard for her was akin to her being a rabbi. In the beginning, she was warm and caring, and they felt safe, talking about how unhappy they were at home. They much preferred to be at school due to the nurturing that they received from the principal. But then the abuse started happening, and due to their lack of sex education, they really didn't know what was happening. They had been totally isolated within the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. So the principal took advantage of their vulnerability, ignorance in sexual matters, and her position of authority. Ellie describes here what she went through. Quote, She was touching me in places all over my body. I never liked it. She could see this but would continue. She would say to me, I'd never be able to give a man pleasure. She told me I needed it because I never had warmth and affection at home. I was more needy than other girls and she was trying to help me get over it. She said it was for me, but I didn't want it. The prosecuting lawyer said, There is no mystery in any of them speaking highly of the accused. Of course they would. They were receiving apparent love and affection from one of the most revered and respected people they knew. How could they help but feel special? And whilst they didn't understand what she was doing to them physically, or even like it, they understood the love, or what they thought was love. So now let's look at the defence argument. One of the witnesses who was called to testify was Dassey's ex-husband. They had married a few years before the allegations came to light, and then they divorced about three years after the principal fled to Israel. He stated the girl's mother had been controlling and that the principal would help the sisters get out of the house as much as possible. He said the girls considered school safer than home. So none of this was really new information, but what he said next was really surprising. He stated that he had overheard Dassey speaking with her sister Nicole on the phone about ways to harass the principal. The defence lawyer then asked him. She was speaking about it like it was a fun and exciting thing to do, and the ex-husband replied, yes. So he seems to be implying here that the allegations against the principal were all false, and just a twisted game between the sisters. So it seems to say that the last 20 years was just the sisters looking to defame the principal. This statement by Dassey's ex-husband then became the basis of the defence argument that the principal should be found not guilty because the sisters colluded with one another to present false allegations, that they lied about the abuse, that it didn't happen, that their own lack of ability to recall certain things confirms it was all made up. Two initial statements by Nicole didn't refer to any penetration. This only turned up in the third statement in 2021. So this suggests that this is a complete fabrication. How could it be so traumatising to Nicole, as she claimed it was, when she didn't even have any memories of the penetration until much later? Overall, when looking at all of the evidence the sisters gave, the defence stated that Nicole had used the word I don't recall or similar over 130 times Dassey over 160 times, and Ellie over 120 times. The defence also raised questions about the fact that the sisters didn't know the abuse was happening to each other. He stated, It doesn't make sense that the three sisters, close in age and who claimed to be very close, didn't share with each other what they were all experiencing. 
The three complainants claim that they went to school on Sundays to meet with the principal, so you'd think that they would all be aware that the other was going as well, yet they weren't. It was also argued that the sisters weren't clueless about sex as they said they were. There is doubt that the girls were isolated from exposure to secular matters as they used to go to the local library and were exposed to the prohibited material, also on the schoolyard. Also, the sisters are of similar age. Usually, older siblings share things with younger ones. So how clueless really were the complainants? In summary, the defence lawyer argued the following. The ex-husband's evidence explains, in part, how this unfortunate narrative of these three sisters commenced, perhaps from innocent beginnings and from remarks taken out of all proportion, which grew like wildfire into a story that was constantly added to and varied over the years, where truth and reliability were lost in false accounts and hardened into false imaginations and false realities of sexual assault and rape. You might have some reservations about a witness who will, as these complainants have demonstrated time and time again, be really uncooperative with the court process by not answering directly. Look at their answers. When asked simple questions about their recollection, and it's their recollections that you are being asked to convict beyond reasonable doubt on, where they can't recall things that you would expect them to recall if these events had actually occurred. He said the sisters had no credibility, that they were attention seekers, and as there were no witnesses, he asserted that this proved the abuse never happened. As the trial was taking place, I was able to follow the proceedings each day from a man who was in the courtroom who had supported the girls in their quest to bring the principal to justice. His name is Manny Wax, and he posted to his Facebook page each day while he was in court, and I was able to follow along in real time. Manny had also been a part of the Orthodox Jewish community in Australia, and he had been a victim of child sexual abuse himself. His abuser eventually went to trial and was found guilty. After his own experiences, he founded an Australian-based support and advocacy group for Jewish victims and survivors of child sexual abuse, and this was when the three sisters approached him to assist them to bring the principal to justice, which was in 2011. So he has been helping the sisters all that time. He also established an organisation in Israel to prevent child sexual abuse in Jewish communities globally. How amazing is that? So as the trial was underway, I was sitting at home reading his comments and writing the script for this episode as I read his comments. It was just so amazing. I felt like I was in the courtroom myself. So the trial was then completed and the jury went out to make their deliberations and they returned and after the verdict was announced, the three sisters left the courtroom and made a statement outside to the waiting media. Here is that audio along with an extended interview that they gave afterwards. Is guilty. We have waited 11 years to say those words. Yes, it's bittersweet, but she is guilty. So there had been 29 charges brought against the principal. Ellie had 10 charges against the principal, and she was eventually found guilty of eight of those. Dassey had 14 charges against her, and she was found guilty of 10 of those. Nicole, she had five charges against the principal, but very sadly, she wasn't convicted on any of those five charges. So altogether, she was found guilty on 18 charges out of 29. Joining us now are Ellie Sapper and Nicole Meyer. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. What a long and arduous journey this must have been for you. How are you feeling at the moment? There's a sense of victory and there's a sense of injustice. Seeing those words today and hearing those words guilty, when we fought for so many years and sometimes doubted that that would happen, was incredible. And at the same time, there's a sense of injustice that the three of us were abused by for so long. 
and why the jury couldn't convict her on some charges is really hard to comprehend. Nicole, is this a complicated verdict for you? Yes, it definitely feels bittersweet. Sometimes it makes me feel like I fought so hard and to hear not guilty, but five charges doesn't show even a glimpse of how much she abused me. It was six and a half years of abuse. So I know the story happened and I know it happened to me and my sisters. And I still stand by that, even after hearing not guilty. We have always stood strong, the three of us together, and this doesn't change anything. We were collectively abused and we have collectively stood for years to bring to justice. And that guilty verdict is for all of us. There's so many ways that that abuse has had an impact, but the one that's forefront is this abuse started when I was just a child. And recently, having a daughter of my own has made me realise how much I want this world to be a safe place for her. And the constant worry and anxiety in regards to that is, has impacted me in ways that I can't describe. We're hoping that the seriousness of the charges and the fact that she evaded justice for so long and has shown no remorse will reflect in the sentencing. And now listen here to Manny as he speaks after the verdict was handed down. So for more, we now welcome to studio activist Manny Wax, the CEO of the organisation Voice Against Child Sexual Abuse. Manny, thank you so much for being here in studio. Goosebumps listening to these courageous women. It is staggering to think that it took 15 years to get this guilty verdict. You were intimately involved in this case. Your reaction? Firstly, it's an incredible day for justice. Uh, Most people uh, were sceptical or worse. No, many people didn't think this day would actually arrive and here we are sitting about discussing a guilty uh, verdict uh, or verdict. So I'm absolutely elated for these three courageous survivors who went through an arduous process over so many years, fought with such perseverance and dignity, and ultimately they succeeded. They are proof uh, and encouragement for survivors, anyone who was abused, to try to pursue justice because ultimately we will get even some semblance of justice in the case. What has the reaction been like in Australia to what unfolded? I mean, as someone who attended um, the hearings, firstly here in Israel, the 75 court hearings just for the extradition to get to Australia, but then also I just returned from Australia last week after sitting inside the courtroom for almost six weeks, uh, just so difficult listening to what these courageous sisters endured. Um, The the responses being overwhelming um, from the Australian Jewish community, but also uh, beyond that, and uh, people are just really happy to see that uh, in these difficult times there is some happy news positive news in that justice is seen to be served and that's critical at the same time i think it's important also to remember that one of the three uh, complainants um, nicole the older sister all the charges in her case unfortunately were not guilty so my heart really does uh, go out to nicole and she's in my thoughts and uh, really hope that uh, she'll be able to um, move on uh, in, in a positive and constructive and healing kind of way Talk to us about the reaction, though, and the criticism in some circles about what happened in Israel, how managed to flee to Israel and was protected by certain communities. How is that being received right now as this verdict unfolds? Firstly, the fact that... um was uh, helped to evade justice by the Adas Israel school leadership back in 2008 is a first uh, point that needs to also be examined. And I know there is a great deal of discussion around that now and myself and others are hopeful that Victoria Police will open this investigation and hopefully hold those to account because we need deterrence, we need justice, we need accountability. And in terms of what transpired here in Israel, it is absolutely shocking what happened. These brave girls were up against it, not only against the system, but also those in leadership positions who were up uh, supporting 
for doing whatever they can, whether it was former health minister Yaakov Litzman, who ended up having to be uh, to, to resign from the Knesset, which is um, seemingly a, a paltry um, a, a payment for something of, of such magnitude to try to uh, stop from being extradited to Australia. Um, but then there were others as well, Rabbi Grossman, a senior rabbi, who offered to assist uh, her as well. So really the, the, the girls were up against it. But in spite of all of this, they succeeded, they got to Australia, she faced justice and was found guilty. But hopefully this will be a learning curve for many people, for countries, for Israel, the way it deals with these types of issues, for Australia in terms of ensuring that people can't evade justice in this kind of way. So there are a lot of lessons learned, but thankfully we are where we are today and it's an incredible day. I'm so happy that I've been able to bring the conclusion of this story to you. For me as a teacher, I have had female principals in the past, and I just cannot comprehend that any of them could be capable of abusing our school kids. And how hard for the sisters to stand in that courtroom and tell explicit details of what the principal did to them sexually with her sitting right there. And I've also read that the sisters know of other victims, but they don't want to come forward. They just want to leave the past in the past, which is totally understandable. And there could even be victims at other schools. Before coming to Australia, she was a principal in Israel, so who knows how many more victims are out there. But the absolute fortitude of those girls to pursue this for so long, the strength needed to do that is just totally beyond me. So now we are waiting on the sentence, and because we don't know how long that will take, I thought I would release this episode anyway, but I will do an update when the sentence is announced. So until then, bye for now, and remember to be a good apple. 